Um, tonight we're going to look at really kind of continue the conversation. Uh, Madeline just read the rest of that chapter, and we'll really just look at uh, two things. What are these things that, that God calls us to put on or to start doing, and what are these things he calls us to stop, and then how? So let me pray for us. Jesus, you, you call yourself the farmer, the vine dresser. You call your kingdom, it's like a farm or a field where seeds are planted. And uh, my prayer for you tonight uh, for us is that you would plant seeds, that you would water seeds, that you would prune, that you would train vines. Uh, and we pray that you would cause growth. One of the verses in this word that you spoke to Paul and him to us is letting your word, the word about you dwell in our hearts and your love rule over us and we would pray that you would help us to do that. Wherever my friends are coming from, knowing you, not knowing you, believing you, rejecting you, that's our prayer. And so uh, we ask this of you before we start to talk about you, amen. I don't know if this is the greatest fear actors and actresses have, but they say when they get interviewed that this is one of their top fears. One of their top fears is being typecast. And you probably are familiar with that term. If you're typecast, it means that no matter what movie you're in or play or anything else, uh, you're really playing the same exact character in every production you're in. So think of Samuel L. Jackson or think of uh, you know, Johnny Depp. He's the weirdo hero in every movie almost. Michael Sarah is kind of the, just the weird, awkward man-child. Um, Melissa McCarthy, I don't know how to describe her role. She's kind of the, I, I mean, I, it would be deeply offensive if I tried to describe what her roles are. Uh, I don't even know how to talk about it, but um, Morgan Freeman is the narrator of reality in every movie he's in, to the point that he even played God in Bruce Almighty. Um, and you think about it, more and more of these actors and actresses, and some of them, the reason they're afraid of it is because it can dead end your career because every time you take on another role, like if Seth Rogen has another time where he's kind of the happy stoner, he, he's, that's all he can play. It's all he is. And other people like aren't, aren't going to hire him. I don't, I don't need that guy in my movie. And so they're afraid of being typecast. And think about how typecasting happens. You take a job, you're an actor and actress, you move to the location the movie's being filmed. And you live there for a few months, probably. And while you're there, from dawn until late into the night, you're shooting. And for one scene that might end up in a movie, you've probably done it 30 times by the time they get the cut that they want. You're memorizing the lines, the script, the narrative. You're eating, drinking, and sleeping this movie and the story. And you have to inhabit the character, the role that you're playing. Because none of us go to, go to the theater to see like real Johnny Depp, like surfing through the channels or whatever, just like sleeping on his couch. We go to see Johnny Depp playing Captain Sparrow or somewhere else. So these actors and actresses have to inhabit and become the person in the role that they're playing. And I saw an interesting interview um, actually today. Jim Carrey was being interviewed. Just before y'all were born, the four movies that Jim Carrey had put out was Ace Ventura 1, Ace Ventura 2, Cable Guy, and Dumb and Dumber. If you've seen any of those, that's a typecast role. He's always the face-contorting, crazy-off-the-charts guy in those movies. 
And then he kind of, you know, disappeared for a few years. He came back and all of the, the second chunk of his career was these really deep, complicated, darker roles. Truman Show, Man on the Moon, um, Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind. These are his roles now, very multidimensional, complicated roles. And the interviewer was saying, like, what was it like for you to go from Ace Ventura and Lloyd Christmas and Dumb and Dumber to Andy Kaufman or these just darker characters in Man on the Moon? This is what Jim Carrey said about breaking out of that typecast. He said it was exhilarating and it was exhausting. It was like I had a whole new life, but that new life took a really long time to adapt to. So listen to that. He said it was simultaneously exhilarating and it was exhausting. And it was like he had a whole new life, but it took a really, really long time to adapt to that new life. It was exhilarating because of the newness of it all. He was done with kind of the, the cheap movies, the thrill movies, and he was into the more complicated roles where talent is really, really required. But he was exhausted because he'd be in these shoots and he was so typecast in the crazy role that that's just second nature to him by this point. It took him a long time uh, to adapt to it. And so as I thought about that and, and saw the interview, I was like, that is a perfect description of the chapter that we've been talking about last week and this week. It's perfect for Colossians 3, describing what has happened. And, and the Christian's experience of, of being caught between, you're a new creation, you're a new person, but a lot of the old, a lot of those old characters and roles you played and habits you developed that became second nature and habitual got brought into this new life with you this new role. Now, if you're not a Christian, sit back and watch at how the Bible describes what kind of a creature a Christian is. It's very different than probably what you might have heard growing up or culturally what you might think of as a Christian. Whatever stereotype or, you know, um, caricature you might, you might think of Christians, this is from the horse's mouth, from God's mouth, what a Christian uh, actually is and what life is like for them. And this is the life that, uh, that, that, that God freely offers uh, to you as well. This is a perfect description of our lives. The metaphor does break down though. And here's where this metaphor of being typecast and breaking out of that role in a new role but with an old, old habits from old characters. It breaks down because God has not just kind of said to the Christian, hey, here's a new script for you. Stop acting like Ace Ventura. Start acting like a mature guy like Andy Kaufman who's thoughtful and pure and complex and you know, it loves his neighbors. Rip out that old script. Here's a new script. Learn your lines. Report back tomorrow. That's where this metaphor is dangerous. That's not at all how the Bible describes grace-driven change in a human life. What, what it does describe is what we've been talking about, that God, at his own initiative, under his own power, by his own mercy and kindness, reaches into the depths of who you are and changes you from the inside out. He reaches into the core of who you are as a person, and he changes you, and he frees you, and he washes you, and he heals you. And like we said last week, he gives you a new identity, a new role, a new character. And it's not just that like, okay, Jim Carrey, you're not, you know, Ace Ventura anymore, you're this new character. It's like the Jim Carrey part of you has changed. You're a new creation, a new person. 
Just to review a few things we've already said. Who, who are we? Over the past few weeks, Paul keeps bringing it up. You're a new person is who you are. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Colossians 3.3, just before what Madeline started reading, he says, you have died, Christian, who's been united to Jesus. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And he says right after that, Christ is your life. And it's not just that you have a new role and a new identity. It's not just that he's broken you out of that typecast, but with this new identity comes new lines, a new script, and new ways of acting that are appropriate to your role and your new character, your new identity. Things that fit the Andy Kaufman role, but this Ace Ventura stuff doesn't fit with that. Colossians 3.9, this is what Paul's describing when he says this. Don't lie to one another because you have put off the old self with its practices. The old character is gone. The old role is gone. And you have, past tense, put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of God. And all of this conversation and stuff about put off, put off, put on, put on. That's Paul saying, you're in a new movie now. You're a new character. You're a new person. You're a new creation. That old stuff, it's not that it's just bad, don't do it. It's not you. It would be as weird uh, as kind of the Ace Ventura part of Jim Carrey coming out in a movie like Pride and Prejudice or a movie like Man in the Moon. And you're like, this doesn't fit. What? What's he talking about? This it just doesn't fit with this new role, this new person he is. And it gives us a new trajectory. A whole new goal and a whole new trajectory. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, Paul says, for Christ died for all, and here's why he gave his life for you, he says, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died and was raised again. Colossians three seventeen. we just read it. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And just so you know, we could go on and on and on and on. Open any book of the Bible and this is how it describes the Christian. He or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The old role, the old, the old scripts, the old lines, the old characters you inhabited aren't you. And there's a new role. And so, in the midst of all this newness I just read about that Paul says, there's exhilaration and if you're newer to this, if, if God's really worked in your life recently, past couple of months, past couple of years, you feel that exhilaration really strongly, right? Everything's new. It's like having a new car, a new phone, living in a new house. It's awesome. Everything works the way it should. It's new. It just feels fresh. And it's all interesting. It's an adventure. But then time passes. Months turn into years. Years turn into a decade. And maybe this is you. You've been alive, you've known God for a long time now, and you just feel the exhaustion. It feels humdrum, and it feels ordinary, and you feel the part of Jim Carrey's interview where he says, it took a long, long time to learn and adapt to this new role. Why? Because I'd spent so much time in the old role. It had become such a part of me that learning these new lines and inhabiting this new role was really difficult. This is why Paul says, 
put off and put on. You're not the old character. And the actions that he tells us to put off that we'll zoom into in just a second don't fit the role or the movie or the director or anything that you're in now. It's just a whole different genre. It doesn't make sense in what you have been caught up in. And so he says, they don't fit, put them off. And this is what I want to zoom into now, is what are the things that he, what are the new actions that he says do fit you? And then how? How do we put them on? Like, what's it like to bring that down to earth and make that practical into how we do that? First, let me give you the big picture. And this comes with an apology because if you know me, you're going to roll your eyes at this because I talk about it all the time. Chip, especially you, because you just watched this. King's speech. I love it. It's the story of King George. The true story. He's Queen Elizabeth's dad. Uh, he was not supposed to be king. His older brother was the crown prince, oldest son in the family. His older brother abdicated the throne, kind of said, I don't want anything to do with this. George, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, gets the throne dropped in his lap. The problem with George is that George had a debilitating stutter and he could not talk. He was never able to talk. He couldn't get more than a syllable or two out. And when he tried, and he did, and you can listen to the speeches online, he would get a couple of syllables into his speech and just stop. And you'd hear silence as he tried to get past that and speak. But the, pro- the problem was that George had become a king now from circumstances outside of his control. And the problem is that kings have to talk. Kings have to lead. They have to rally a nation. They have to galvanize people. And so for George, when he goes to this, this speech therapist, Lionel Logue, that the movie is really about Lionel, he goes to this speech therapy and they start doing day after day after day of just rudimentary speech therapy. And they're kind of inventing it as they go. Uh, and, and, and it's not enough for King George to put off his stutter. That is not Lionel's goal in his speech therapy to get the king to stop stuttering. His goal is a positive goal. It's to help the king talk. Imagine where the king would be and where England would be if he just stopped it, put off stuttering. Put off the stutter. Well, you've wound up with a mute king in a nation with no leader. So he pushes on. It's put off the stutter so that you can use your mouth and your brain for the things they were given to you for. It's, it's going back to the original purpose. Why do you have these to begin with? Why do you have a mouth? Why do we talk? To lead, to encourage, to, to persuade. He had to put off and he had to put on. And that's what Paul says in this passage. And it's not just that he had to put on. He had to put on and keep putting on and keep putting on day after day, even when he stuttered again and fell back and failed. It had to become second nature. Ultimately, why? Because he's a king. And kings talk. And kings use their mouths for these reasons. And that's Paul's thinking in Colossians 3. Put, on, put off. All the stuff we talked about last week is only half the equation. Christianity is, is not this, this diatribe of stuff you need to stop doing. It, it only talks about the put-offs and the stop doing this so that it can get to the good stuff. Yes, you have to start stop stuttering if you're going to talk. Yes, if you're going to be a loving person that contributes to the flourishing of the people around you, you have to put off sexual selfishness. 
an immorality that he talked about last week. You have to put off consuming the bodies of other people so that you can love other people and serve them and use your body for what it was made to be used for. We have to put off so that we can put on. It's not a, not a, not a religion, not a, not a f- following Jesus cannot simply be for you the things you're not supposed to do anymore because you have a new script. Following Jesus is all the things you get to do now because you're alive. And because you're alive and because you're walking with him, there are things that must be put off because they are impeding and creating obstacles to who you are and where you're going now. So let's look at some of the details of what Paul talks about in the passage, these put-offs and put-ons. He says things like this. It's the first verse Madeline read, verse nine. He says, um, don't lie to each other Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. Well, what's the put on? The put on is you get to start telling the truth. If the put off is gossip and slander that he says last week and obscene talk, what is the put on? The put on is now you get to start talking behind people's backs about how cool that thing you saw them do was. And you get to start spreading viral accounts of how great people are or how so-and-so, look, just give her some patience. She's going through some hard stuff right now. Lay off, just give her some space. That's what you get to put on. That's what you get to use your mouth for now to contribute to life, not to take, take life and produce death. That's what we get to put on. Um, we get to put on speaking up for friends or giving a voice to someone who doesn't have a voice in some situation. That's what you get to put on. About to get real. There's an original good purpose, not just for our mouths. There's an original and a good person for your sexual desires, for your sexuality, for your genitals, for your body. All of that is a God-designed, God-given piece of your humanity, and it had an original purpose. We have stutters there, though. We have obstacles, we have warping there that makes it all dysfunctional. And the Bible is not just a concern to say, stop doing all that sex stuff. No, the Bible is the advocate of start doing this. The original purpose of all of this is to edify a person and to say with your body and your actions, because you've said with your mouth in front of people, I will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. I am for you and I always will be for you. I will always decide towards you. And that's why we can trust each other in this pinnacle of human vulnerability, of nakedness and union together. That's the purpose of sexuality, to to get a tiny little taste of what Jesus' love for his people is like. It is sublime, it is otherworldly. That's what sex is for. That's what your body is for. And that's why God made it feel the way it feels. That's the original purpose. Don't just hear him say put off. Hear him say put on. We get to put off resentment and bitterness and grudges and clickiness and tribalism and partisanship. Why? Because that junk is not who you are anymore. It's like going back to your closet at home and seeing what you wore maybe freshman year of high school or in middle school, and you're like, you don't even attempt to put those clothes on. You're a different person than you used to be. Paul's like, you're a different person. Don't even put that junk on anymore. It doesn't fit who you are. 
anymore. Who you are now is a part of a community, a global community, intergenerational throughout all history, past, present, future, both in heaven and here on earth. You are a part of a community where there is no Greek or Jew or barbarian, no male or female, no rich or poor, no woke or unwoke, no privileged or unprivileged. You're a part of a community where Christ is what binds us together, not your past, not our political opinions, not what I think of your opinions. That is tribal, it's primitive, it's primeval, and it kills, it tears apart. Paul said you're in a community now where love binds all things together. We get to put on being patient with each other now and maybe asking a question, why do you believe that? I'm curious. I'd love to understand you and not project the category of conservative or progressive on you. Tell me what you think. I want to know you better. I want to know why you tick that way. Why does this make so much sense to you? That's what you get to put on. We get to put off the clickiness of I got my three friends here I can walk in the door with and leave with them. Why? Because you are bound to all the other people in the room. And you get to put on walking a row or two back in a few minutes and saying, hey, I'm Ben. I'm really glad you're here. That's the put on because it's who you are now. It's your role. It's the script. It's the lines. And the more we do it, the more second nature and habitual it becomes that we don't even really have to think about it ideally one day. We get to put on truth-telling instead of lying. We get to tell that roommate, when you come in at two and slam the door every night, it makes life so hard for me. Maybe this is me. Maybe I'm impatient. I'll own that. Could we please work out some kind of a system where you don't slam the door? That's truth-telling. Patiently and humbly. Instead of like passive-aggressively, when you come in, and the pictures fall off the wall. That's what we get to put on. We get to bear with, we get to bear with patiently the guy in your small group who probably doesn't really know what he's talking about, but that's never stopped him from talking about it. And we get to bear patiently with him. We don't have to go out the room and gossip about him and destroy his reputation. We get to say, hey, let's grab lunch. And as you get to know him, you learn from him and you teach him too, like Paul says in just a second. So, friends, there's a lot of other applications about this, but for the sake of time, that's what we get to put on. It's a positive call to lean into your new role, which is not just a script, but is who you are now, and to inhabit this role with this director and this drama and these other co-actors and actresses. And so, I think the litmus test for what, if you're wondering, is something helpful for me? Is it Is it godly or is it ungodly? The litmus test for you at this point sounds like this out of this passage. Does this fit the new me? And does this fit the future me? Does this action or this path or this behavior fit who I am now? If it doesn't, flee, run, execute it, put it to death like he said last week. Does it fit future me, who I am becoming, who Jesus is relentlessly, patiently making me into? If it doesn't, flee from it, run from it. And if it does, embrace it and drill it into yourself and find ways for it to become second nature and habitual. And I just want to ask one question before we finish with how. 
Think with me. This is rhetorical. Think with me. It should be literal, though. Maybe we should actually ask this question more of each other. What would RUF be like? What would this community be like if we were a community who were all of us taking seriously the call to inhabit your new role and to put these things on? What would the guy-girl relationships in RUF be like if the guys were putting these things on and so were the girls? What would people on campus think about you or this group if this is what we were known by? What would your boyfriend or girlfriend think if this is the stuff you were known by? That's what's on the line here. We are either a life-giving, burden-lifting, kingdom-spreading community, or we are the opposite of that, a black hole where people keep getting sucked in and dying and life diminishes. That's what's on the line. And Paul says, you have been freed to put these things on. You have the spirit of Jesus in you and you are in him. His energy is at work inside of you. Lean into this. So how? How do we grow in these things like truth-telling and bearing patiently and forgiving each other as God has forgiven us? How do we put off the things that Paul says to put off that seem so impossible? Well, follow me here. This is pretty linear because Paul gets just like really logical here. Um, And we're gonna dig a little deeper every time. The first thing he says, how? um, Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. That's the first thing Paul says in terms of the how. Uh, Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your, that's a plural pronoun, your, our hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So, let the peace of Christ. Is that a feeling? Is that an emotion? Is that a warm sense of tranquility on my insides? Let that rule my heart? I mean, I guess I'm not opposed to that. That'd be awesome if you always had that. You won't. Because you can't, like we said last week, I can't tell you, feel happy, feel sad, feel pensive. You can't just feel something. You can think something on spontaneously, though. And Paul is saying, let the peace of Christ uh, rule in your hearts. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about a historical peace. A durable, indestructible peace. That sure, it produces feelings. Sometimes, oftentimes, maybe. He's talking about a peace treaty, a reconciliation that has happened between Jesus and you, between God and you, him freely coming to you and saving you from the one thing you can't save yourself from, your past and your present and your future. Our sin, our regret, our shame, our brokenness. That's what he's talking about. Let that peace The peace of the gospel, which is a historical claim, not an inspirational or anecdotal or aspirational claim. It's go read the newspaper kind of claim. Let the peace that he brought through that event rule and dominate our hearts forever. Let the the implications of that, that God favors you now, that he is forever for you and will never be against you. Let that rule, let it sink down, let it grab you. Let it dominate the very core of your motivations and your decisions and your being. And then he uses the word, he uses the word let, which means, the word let, like when he says let the peace of Christ and let the word of Christ dwell. When you say, when I command you to let something happen, isn't there some kind of implication that maybe there's an obstacle or a little bit of resistance, you know? 
Uh, let the dog in implies there's a door that's shut that perhaps needs to be opened. Or let me in means there's something in my way between me and you. And he says, let the peace of Christ dwell or rule in you. Let the word of Christ uh, dwell amongst you. Look, here's what I think the point there is. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, have a life of their own. They're not, it's not an emotion, it's not a feeling, it's something outside of you. It's the gospel. It's Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and now his reign. And when you say, let it rule over you, let it dwell in you, you're presuming that it has a life of its own. It's like the dog that wants to be let in. Or when Jesus says, let the children come to me, what does it imply? The children are alive and they're coming at me. Let them come. Remove the barriers. Or let me in. I'm already coming. Remove the barriers. This peace is coming at you. This gospel is coming at you. Let it overtake you. Let it catch up to you. Let it tackle you. Let it outrun you. Stop running. Stop resisting. If you are the person who's put up the no trespassing sign because I got better plans, better ideas, better thing going for me, another script I'm living off of, this is Paul's call to stop. Let it in. Let him in. Execute everything, like execute everything that threatens this peace, ruling you. And then he says, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And already, so we're getting a little bit more clarity about how, but it's still abstract, right? You're still like, okay, sounds good. Sign me up for that, but how? Well, then he says this next thing, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly or tabernacle is the word he uses. Let it tabernacle in you. Let it fill you up and dance around inside of you. Let it overflow inside of you, this dynamic power and energy of God's grace. Let it tabernacle inside of you. Take up residence inside of you. The word, uh, the word of Christ is, is uh, it's synonymous in scripture with the gospel. That's what they always call it. The word about Christ, the word of Jesus. It's Jesus' gospel. The story of God saving people who can't and won't save themselves. Let that dwell in you richly. Us, because he says it plurally, we are to let that story, that reality of Jesus' grace to sinners, his preference towards the sick, that's what's got to dwell in us and dance among us and be the power and the glue that holds us together. And again, you might say, well, how? Because we're still in abstract land. And he says, okay, I'll tell you how. We'll get a little deeper. Teach each other in all wisdom. Admonish each other in all wisdom whenever you get together. And now he's saying, Ben isn't the one who teaches you. You're the one who teaches you. You're the ones who teach each other. That's why I say, don't just come to me and say, let's meet up. Turn to the people next to you and say, let's meet up. You need them. You need them to smuggle in the good news of the gospel into your dark places, into places of unbelief and doubt and spinning wheels. And a lot of times the people around you will know how to do it better than even the people up here. And he says, admonish each other, which means when you see something that's Ace Ventura happening in Pride and Prejudice or Man on the Moon, you say, hey, it sounds like Ace. That doesn't fit who you are. That's not what we use our mouths for. Come on, man. How can I help? What do you need? Tell me. I'm there. Tell me what you need. And I'm there. And last, how? Last time saying, but Ben, what? 
Like get practical, concrete. Paul is again willing to entertain that question too. And he says, okay, how do we teach? How do we admonish? How do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? He gets weird. He says, sing. Sing psalms, spiritual songs, and hymns. And you're like, uh, wasn't expecting that answer. I was like expecting quiet times, read my Bible, that kind of stuff. Sing? Why sing? This is why. Music is sublime, right? It is transcendent. It does something to you that mere words cannot do to you. If words are like a solid, music is like a liquid. It penetrates places that solids just can't get to. It reaches places inside of you, your heart and your mind, that just words or lectures or sermons or messages cannot access. Music, on the other hand, shows up there before you even knew it got in. Some of you have had experiences in the songs we sing or the songs you sing other places, and you're caught off guard by a line. And if you just read that as a poem, it, you, you'd be bored to tears, but you sang it, and it caught you off guard, and it surprised you with the goodness of God, how patient he is, how generous he is, how loving he is, and it just got to a place that none of this could ever get to. That's why we sing the songs we sing, by the way. That's why we're picky about what we sing here at REF. And I know if you're newer, it's like, what a, sometimes it can be weird. You don't know the songs. You're just sitting there watching. I had to go through that too. There is a reason we sing what we sing because we know this music will get to places deep inside of you and we want it to be grace that gets inside of you, gospel that gets inside of you, Jesus and his work, not you and your work. Not you and your feelings about God, but Jesus and his feelings about you. If it's going to reach the furthest depths and the caves and the nooks and crannies of your insides, we want to make sure it's the best stuff possible getting to those places. That's why we sing what we sing, and it's why we sing every time we get together. Because these songs that we're about to sing do things that this can't. It smuggles into you grace and the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, as we prepare to sing now, we pray that you would even do that now uh, in our midst among us. We pray, well, we thank you that you have a life of your own. Again, you're not this idea that we've got to go pick up and put down and study, but you are a person who is alive and resurrected and you are the king and you have all authority and all power in heaven and earth. So do with us what you would. Do with this community what you would smuggle the fresh breeze of the gospel to the furthest, darkest reaches of our hearts. We pray in your name, amen.